Welcome to this production from College Place United Methodist Church. To find out more about our church, please visit our website at www.collegeplaceumc.org. And now, here's our sermon from Rev. Tab Miller. I, uh, as I said last week, James kind of left me a little sore. You know, it's, it's like a good workout. Being sore is not a bad thing. It's just after a while, you need to take a little bit of a breather. And so I thought this week I'd run to the arms of Jesus and go to the Gospels and see what the lectionary had for us in the Gospels. And lo and behold, there's Jesus, the brother of James, giving his strongest rebuke of Peter that we have in the Gospel Get behind me, Satan. And I started to see the family resemblance. But uh, after, our, after reading the text again, I thought, you know what? This is, a, this is a great text, and I don't want to shy away, of course, from preaching it. Our text this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say that I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priest and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And after three days rise again, he spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciple, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes to his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is God's word, and we should tremble. I mean, what a heart-wrenching, mind-melting experience this must have been for Peter, the disciple. Peter blunders through the scriptures. He's a bit of comic relief for us because we see him walking in the intensity of what it means to follow Jesus Christ, and he lightens the load by stumbling and bumbling his way through it. We see ourselves in Peter a little bit, stumbling and bumbling our way as we try to walk with Jesus and not always quite getting it. This was one of the defining characteristics of Peter. He was willing to speak without thinking things through. He was quick to speak without giving much measure. He just blurted it out. And this makes him somewhat comical, but it, help, it can lead us away from missing a good point 
And that is that for better or worse, he really is speaking for all the disciples. He was the spokesman for the disciples. He is just saying what everybody else is thinking. As a matter of fact, he's actually speaking for all of us. He's voicing what we would be thinking, perhaps, or maybe even saying if we were there with Jesus for the very first time, hearing about his mission for the very first time, and this idea that Jesus had to die. And for Peter's, all of Peter's boldness, he's both rewarded and rebuked. He's willing to call Jesus the Messiah, the king, not a king, the king, the anointed one, the promised one that's going to come and set the world right. He's also the first one willing to tell Jesus he's wrong about how he's going to be the king. Jesus says, I must die. And the word that the scripture uses to talk about how Peter spoke back to him is the word rebuked. Jesus was rebuked by Peter. Now, this is the same word that the gospel is going to use time and again to explain how Jesus drives out demons. He rebuked the demons. So it is strong language, right? Peter used pretty strong language with the king of everything. We wouldn't rebuke Jesus, would we? You wouldn't do that, would you? That's really the form of, or that's one form of the unspoken question that Jesus is really asking. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And we all reply, Jesus, you're king. But the unspoken question, the one that Peter failed was, if I'm king, will you do what I say? Will you follow me? Or will you rebuke me? Now this side of things, this side of the gospel, after everything has shaken out, we can shake our finger at Peter and say, shame, shame. We can stand next to Jesus and kind of roll our eyes and say, Peter. Poor thing, he's just not getting it. Here in the South, we say, bless his little heart. <laughs> Yet we will see that there are a myriad of ways in which we say the same thing to Jesus without actually saying it. It doesn't have to come off our lips for us to say, Jesus, I rebuke you. I tell Jesus he's wrong all the time when I don't live out his calling in my life and I don't choose his instructions and instead choose my own. But notice that Jesus does not say, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. He actually says, if you are ashamed of me and my words. You can't separate me from my teachings. You have to accept me, not just my sacrifice so that you go to heaven one day when you die. You have to walk with me. You can't be hidden in me if you're not on the journey with me. And this is the journey. It's freely offered for you to join him, but it will change you. On this side of the cross, death and resurrection makes perfect sense. It's easy. It just kind of rolls off our tongue. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. It makes all perfect sense. Of course God had to come and right our wrongs and save us because we're helpless, right? Of course that makes sense. Of course he must die the death that I can't die because if I die it, I'm over. So Christians so easily say, God died. And the rest of the world looks at us and says, what? Your God died? No, God does not die. And so Paul says that the cross is confusion and scandal to the world, and indeed it is. Because think about it this way. In what other area of life would such an action make any sense at all? Jesus has come to conquer sin and death, 
He's come to conquer. He's come to defeat. He's come to drive out. He's come to destroy death itself. Them there's fighting words, right? That's, that's about a fight. That's about a battle. Jesus has come to do battle. And when he goes toe-to-toe with the oppressor, Rome, with the religious elite of Israel, with the teachers and the scribes and the Pharisees, when he goes toe-to-toe with sin and death itself, he simply surrenders. To Peter, it looks like he just rolls over. Does that sting a little bit? Jesus just rolling over? I hope it does. It stings me. He says that his enemies are coming. Peter, my enemies are coming for me, and I'm going to die. I must die. I'm going to die. I'm going to lay down my life. And to Peter, this sounds like a dog showing his neck. It makes me squirm a little bit because that seems so disrespectful to say of Jesus. For one thing, Jesus is no coward. We know Jesus isn't a coward. But more than that, surrender just sounds unheroic. No hero should go to their great foe and stick out their neck, bow their head and say, just have it. What would you think of any other hero from history or from lore? Would we remember them if this is how they went to a fight? What would you think of your great heroes that you talk about all the time? Now, we know the results of sin and death this side of the cross. Death itself was delivered a death blow by Jesus on the cross. But that wasn't obvious to Peter, and we can't blame him for being a little concerned. Who would have followed William Wallace and say, well, just just let the crown have it. Just let the crown kill us. Who would have followed George Washington if he said, let the British shoot you down. It'll all be okay. What would we think of the greatest generation if they went to Omaha Beach without any weapons? Surely these people are heroes. Surely they're brave. I don't deny that. But what Jesus did was braver. But no wonder why Peter was scandalized. Jesus saying he must die just sounds wrong. It just sounds like he's given up before he's even tried. Israel is under the oppression of Rome. Do not forget that. And the scripture had also promised to Israel that their Messiah would conquer the oppressors. Emperors like the Roman emperor, people like Pharaoh, they would not have control over this world forever. The scripture had promised Messiah would come, he would conquer the oppressors. So what sense does it make for Jesus to go to the oppressor and allow the oppressor to kill him? Israel often knew that the prophets, yeah, they would be martyred. They were willing to go and die. And so maybe Jesus is a martyr, or maybe he's a prophet. But he can't be Messiah. Prophet, yeah. King, no. On a cosmic scale, again, we know that the oppressor Rome was just a puppet of real oppression, of spiritual evil. We don't fight against flesh and blood, the Bible tells us, but about evil in the spiritual realm. Evils that come from kings and nations and even individuals have a spiritual root that must be cut. Jesus could have killed everyone in Rome and the root would have remained. There was something bigger going on than just the emperor. And we can see how the rules of engagement must change that the death of God on a cross would actually mean death of death itself. Because God is too great an enemy to death for him to be consumed. 
But we can't see Peter as a buffoon here. We have to see ourselves in him. Jesus says, I have to die. And would you look back at him and go, I think that's a great idea. I love it. Let's go with it. You die and Rome falls. No, it's scandalous. As the NIV puts it, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the cross is foolishness. I can remember when the scandal of the cross first became scandalizing to me. I had grown up in a Christian home, in a Christian church, much like this one. And I was told from a very early age that Jesus died on the cross. It was like being eased into the water. I wasn't shocked, right? And so I often wondered about it as a child, but I don't remember being scandalized by it. I was in seminary attending a chapel service, and the president of the seminary at the time was also our homiletics preacher, which means he taught preachers how to preach. And he began to raise his voice. Now, for some reason, Asbarians are known. We're known for getting a little fired up and raising our voice. But this was not the sort of preacher Dr. Callis was. Dr. Callis was always measured, and he was most often soft-spoken. He could nail you right between the eyes with a hammer and make you feel like it was the most loving thing he'd ever done for anybody. The velvet hammer, you've heard that phrase before. But on this day, Dr. Callis let it rip. He's speaking about Paul's words of the scandal of the cross. He looked at the cross and he said, look at it then. A naked figure hanging on a tree like a side of beef. He says, now that's power if you want power. That's it. Because that will turn the world upside down. And my stomach dropped. And my heart began to pound. I was sweating. And I felt exposed. Look at the cross. Look at Jesus hanging there, bleeding for you. See the cross for what it is. It's scandalizing power. And isn't that how Jesus was on the cross? Stripped and exposed for you and me. Truly looking at the cross and Jesus' sacrifice will tear you down and make you vulnerable. And Jesus says, that vulnerability, I want you to live in that. This vulnerability that I'm exposing, that I'm showing. Power in the form of weakness. This is what I want you to do. Give yourself, take your cross, and live the gospel. Exposed, naked, dying man from the part of the world we now call the Middle East. Palestinian Jew with no money, no power in human terms. He's hanging on the cross and God says, this is my power revealed to you. And we pretend as if it makes all the sense in the world. At least I do. And yet we see in this passage that Jesus says, It is absolutely crucial that my disciples understand the meaning of my death. That you look upon the cross and that you actually get it. You have to understand my cruciform love. You have to understand my sacrifice. It's crucial for you. It has to be crucial for us. If it was crucial for Peter, it has to be crucial for us. Because Jesus says, misunderstanding this point, unwittingly or wittingly, if you miss the point, you can be led into alignment with Satan himself. This has to happen. 
And so this is the part of Mark's gospel that's a turning point. This is Mark pulling together two theologies from Israel that really never connected in the time until now. The first theology is that there would be a Christ coming, a Messiah, a victorious king, the king of everything. And then there was also this idea of a lowly servant, an accused criminal, condemned to death on a cross for you and for me. And somehow, those pieces of the puzzle have to click together. The disciples have been following Jesus on this journey, and he's been slowly revealing to them that something great is going on. Something wonderful. And so the question is looming. What does this all mean? Notice that the rest of Israel does not come to the conclusion that Peter comes to. Christ the anointed king? No, they never said that. Who did they say that I am? Oh, you're John the Baptist or Elijah. Now these these are dead people. Perhaps you're a prophet, Jesus. We can believe that you're John the Baptist or Elijah back from the grave... Before we'll believe that you're Messiah. Because that doesn't make any sense. You're not making yourself out to be a king. Not like other kings. Caesar has all the power in the world. How are you going to defeat his throne if you aren't willing to raise an army? Messiah has to defeat Rome, right? Scripture says he will take down the oppressors. And Jesus says, no, not in the way you're thinking. The real evil that must be faced is not petty little emperors like the emperor in Rome. Jesus has to drive out the biggest slave driver, the biggest king in our life, the king of sin, that leads us to hatred and greed and pride and anger and malice and all the various things that drive human beings to hurt other human beings. That is your real slave driver, he says to his disciples. Sin is your true enemy, and sin is in the human heart. It cannot be defeated Like worldly powers. Were worldly powers a problem in the day and time? Yeah. Anytime a worldly power oppresses people, it is a concern of God. But defeating their king is only a temporary solution. You have to get deeper than that. Sin causes the harm. It breaks us apart. And that has to go. So Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, something that all the rest of Israel could not get. And God even says, this has been given to you as a revelation from the Father, but not even this confession was enough. Because Peter couldn't quite see why Jesus had to die. He answered the explicit question perfectly. Who do you say that I am? Your king. But he failed the implicit question. Will you follow me? Jesus says that Peter missed it, and we miss it because our eyes are on human concerns and not the things of God. You see, Peter wanted a conquering Jesus that slew his enemies. Cut them down, Jesus. Take their blood. He's seething. What have they done to Israel? They need to be punished. But Jesus says, I'll be the suffering king who dies for my enemies. Are you willing to die for your enemies? And this makes Peter uncomfortable. He tries to then deny the teaching of Christ. How often have I done that? I don't know about you, but I have denied it when Scripture has made me uncomfortable. Jesus says to us, love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. If someone sues you, give them more than they ask for. Forgive those who sin against you and harm you. Do not take vengeance. 
and count it as a blessing when you're persecuted. This is where the passage really gets scandalous. Because Jesus isn't just talking about his suffering. He suggests, this is how I lead my life. And this is where I'm going to lead you. You too take up your cross for a sake of a lost and dying world. See, we're getting a little closer to the foolishness, aren't we? We say, oh, Jesus dying on the cross for my sins, that makes all the sense in the world. But if it made sense for the king to suffer, how much more sense would it mean that we follow him into carrying our own cross for the sake of a lost and dying world? If the cross makes perfect sense, Jesus' call for us to radically live differently as living sacrifices, giving of ourselves daily in vulnerability, that would make sense too. And if that made sense to every Christian, there'd be food and clothing for every pitiable, poor, hungry, naked person. There'd be shelter for every homeless man, woman, and child. There would be homes open to all the refugees. There would be daily acts of love and kindness. And there would be millions of people, because that's the size of Christianity, millions of people giving without any expectation of anything in return, because that's what Jesus did. What could stop us from living this way if we knew the power of the cross. Because if the cross really is real, if he did what he said he did on the cross, then nothing in the world can steal that away from you. You can march to the gates of hell. You can proclaim Christ in places where they say, don't do it or we'll kill you. And you know it will cost you nothing. If we believed that, and I just hope we get a little closer to believing that this morning in our souls. What could stop us? There'd be a lot less finger pointing at sinners and worrying about what they could do. They can't do anything to us. There'd be a lot less pointing our fingers at sinners and a lot more meeting them where they are. There'd be a lot more Jesus in the world is what I'm trying to say if we really believed it. There'd be a lot more Jesus in me if I really believed it. Because I'll be honest with you. I look at Christ naked and exposed on that cross. I look at the man who lived his life without a place to lay his head, and I'm shaken to my core, and I'm afraid, and I ask, how could I give that much up? So the cross does scandalize me. Does it scandalize you? Do you look to carry your cross, or would you rather just not? Do you live to love your enemy, and do you rejoice in your persecutions? Or instead, as I said last week, there are many Christians out there who are willing to lash out at their foes, to call them pieces of garbage or worse. They're willing to go into cultural wars with others. They're willing to draw blood from their political foes. They want their enemies to suffer. We like it when people get what's coming to them, and we say good riddance when it happens. Christians hold grudges, and we don't thank God for our persecution. Instead, we lash out at our persecutor. If Jesus would have lashed out at his persecutor, we all wouldn't be sitting here. I'm not accusing any one person. I'm accusing myself as much as anybody else. So Jesus says, just embrace the cross. For the sake of the sinners I'm calling home, would you embrace the cross? Because that's where my heart is, and where my heart is, I want your heart to be also. He was the one hanging on the cross and said, Father, forgive them, talking about you and me. For they know not what they do. He wants me to follow him and it hurts to follow. It makes me angry. I don't want to forgive. 
because I'm scandalized by the cross. I don't want to love my enemies. I don't want to forgive 70 times 7. I don't want to consider everybody in my path my neighbor. But Jesus bids me come. And he rebuked Peter, and you may be feeling a little rebuked yourself. I don't know. But what he didn't do is he didn't uninvite Peter from the journey, even stumbling and bumbling, tripping up the whole way. Now, I would much rather follow Jesus straight to the throne and say, my king is on the throne, now you fall down and obey him. But Jesus says, for me to get to my throne, I have to go to my cross and die. For you to come to my throne, you have to humble yourselves and carry your humiliating cross. If you want me to be your king, just as I died for you, I ask you to die to yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. Are you feeling scandalized yet? Jesus was humiliated on that cross. The Roman execution was humiliating. There was other executions in Rome that were much more dignified. But this one was meant, not just in this pain was it the worst, this one was meant to humiliate you. Stripped naked and beaten and hung out, exposed for the world to see. And Jesus said, I did it all for you. I, I had to die. I must die. And that doesn't make any sense because God doesn't have to do anything. He doesn't need me at all. He says, I must die to accomplish what I want. And what I want is you. I had to die because I want you. Because the truth of the matter is this. I'm about to say something that's really scandalous. Jesus could have defeated sin and death without ever going to the cross. I said it. Let me explain myself. Peter thought that what Jesus should do was conquer all of Rome and everybody who sinned. Jesus could have called down the angels and said, I want you to kill every last person that aids and abeds sin. Put them all to death. And the result would be that every last human would be dead and we wouldn't be here. History would be over. Jesus could have power like that. And he would have killed every sinner and sin would have been judged. Sin would have been defeated. But Jesus didn't just come to defeat sin. He came because he wanted you. Defeating sin is as easy as snapping his fingers and we just out of existence. But he says, I love you and I want you. And I'm going to die for you. I have to do it. And you have to follow me. But love can't be forced. If you love me, just follow me. Be not ashamed of me and my words. Because you can't separate me from my teaching. And that puts a whole different spin on being ashamed of Christ. Being ashamed of Christ is not just our unwillingness to say his name and tell people we're Christians. Being ashamed of Christ can come out in our actions when we refuse to trust his way when we refuse to bear our crosses for the sake of a lost and dying world. There will be many people who come into this world who are unashamedly, or, yeah, they will unashamedly proclaim Christ as king. The proof of his lordship is in our walk, isn't it? It's not just in our words. Speaking is easy. I can talk all day long. I get up here, I love talking. That's easy. The proof, though, is in how we live. Do we turn the other cheek or do we go, Jesus didn't mean, that was all hyperbole. That was met on it. Don't turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. <clears throat> I don't want to do that. Sorry. Don't pay back those people who have wronged you with vengeance. 
Rejoice in your persecution. Suffer for your neighbor. Jesus, you didn't mean that. And if we say that to him, we rebuke him. Because we're saying, you're, you're white. You're, you just don't get it, do you, Jesus? And he says, who do you say that I am? And will you follow me? And the proof will be in the fruits of the Spirit that your love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. You've got to go to the cross to be resurrected. You have to be made weak to be made strong. You have to lose yourself in order to be found. You have to be made foolish to know the truth. You must give your love away in order to be filled with love. As the band comes back up, I will say this. Only Jesus could die for our sins. Our sacrifice is not about saving ourselves. Simply about trusting Jesus that his way is good, even though it doesn't look all that good. It can seem pretty foolish to us. I don't want to suffer for others. Jesus says, my grace is free, but if you take it, it will change you. And faith is about living in the scandal of the cross. Being shaken to your core by the love of Jesus Christ. And being so amazed at it that you can't help but live as a sacrifice for others. Offering your love to all whom you come in contact with. Who do you say I am? Jesus asks us. You are the king, we say back. And he says, if you believe that, will you get out of your own way? Will you move aside and will you follow me? Peter wasn't uninvited because he was scandalized. Jesus wanted him to be scandalized. But Jesus made sure he understood the scandal abundantly clear. So is it clear to you this morning? Jesus is asking, will you continue to put yourself aside and walk with me daily? Will you put your grudges aside? Will you put all the things, the fruits of sin aside and pick up the fruits of the Spirit? Will you allow me to bear them in you? Maybe some of us, I know I'm part of this, need to talk to Jesus again about laying ourselves down, stepping aside, and saying, Jesus, I want to follow you and carry my cross. I don't understand sometimes why. It's not a part of my nature to want to give myself away and to lay down my life, but you say it is what I should do, and I trust you, and so I follow you for the sake of a lost and dying world. Because you saw me as worthy, I will see them as worthy. The altar's open this morning. This has been a production of College Place United Methodist Church. May God bless you richly upon hearing this message.